to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Tuesday, April the 13th, 2021. On this edition of the Politocrat. So, that right there, it, it hurt him a lot. And when we went to the funeral, it's just, George just sat there at the casket over and over again. He would just say, Mama, Mama, over and over again. And I didn't know what to tell him because I was in pain too. We all were hurting. And he was just kissing her. He was just kissing her. He didn't want to leave the casket. And everybody was like, come on. Come on, it's going to be okay. How do you measure a life? That was Felonius Floyd testifying on Monday at the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, who killed Felonius's brother, George. Last year, on Memorial Day in Minneapolis, You'll be hearing more from Philonius Floyd and you'll be hearing from the aunt of Dante Wright who was killed on Sunday in Minnesota. Not far away, actually, from where George Floyd was murdered. Back to Black, and welcome to this edition of The Politocrat. Thank you very much um, for joining me on this daily affair. And I hope that you have been well and keeping well uh, amidst all of the the difficult, adverse, and troubling times that we are living in. And I hope that in your personal lives there are some really good things that you cherish and hold on to. Um, and that you are thankful for because that's really important with everything that's going on. We've got a pandemic, you've got things going on in your life that probably are challenging to you and then you've probably got some really good things going on in your life. Um, And it's important to hold on to all of that because this is a really crazy world. It's a crazy, beautiful, wonderful, cruel world and a violent one. And... You have to feel a certain way about all those things as you do hold on to the things in life that um, please you, that fortify you. A walk, a run, a look at the nature that you may be living close to. If not, perhaps you're not too far away from it or you're just grateful that the sun shines or that the rain hits the the window pane or that there is fog or there that there is a warmer climate, or that it's nice and cool, or that you like cloudiness, or that you happen to have this view outside your window that's just absolutely splendid. There's so many things to be grateful for that we have a planet that's still here despite the um, horrible violence being done to it. We still do have a planet, 
a semblance of one with the horrible violence, as I said, being done to it with the environment that we really need to continue to try to slow the effects down of climate change and global warming. We need to do all of these things and we need to, again, find compassion and love um, and also express your feelings. You have very clearly heard me do that on this podcast, not just over these last few days, but throughout. And it is a healthy thing to do. The healthy thing to do is to express yourself, is to express your feelings, and also to use your feelings to drive you to do things that will change situations in the ways that you can change them to the extent that you can. Um, there's so many ways that that takes the form that in which those that form takes. And maybe I'm not articulating, articulating it the best way in the moment, but there are so many ways where your anger about an issue or about injustice or about anything, um, you can channel that into something that provides a springboard. For example, one of the things I think of immediately, and this is for the families who actually have lost somebody in these kinds of situations, is that they do... Um, either start some kind of fund, start some kind of uh, association, you know, some kind of um, organization or company that is dedicated toward honoring not only the memory of their lost loved one, but also to other people who are cut down like this so violently by the police. I mean, I think of George Floyd's Memorial Foundation. The George Floyd Memorial Foundation is the official um, organization for George Floyd and for scholarships and for all kinds of things that that foundation is set up for. And it was set up by his family. Set up by his family. So these are the kinds of things that I think are important and it doesn't have to be that it, for people who haven't lost someone. It could be um, maybe writing a book. It could be teaching. It could be running for office. It could be designing. Um, well, I was going to say designing, not designing T-shirts. That's not what I was going. Uh, although that might be something that you that you might use it for. But and that's not what I. <laughs> that's not what I use it for. But you could manifest. Your anger in so many ways. It could be by starting a podcast and and just um, <laughs> venting, but also not just venting, but also using the podcast or using a platform that you may have or invest in or may start to actually educate people and go through um, some of the things that can teach people. So, that, uh, you know, there's so many things that we can do. And be angry. That, uh, that is actually the message which I hadn't conveyed in these previous episodes. Be angry. You should be angry because that means you're sane. Honestly, and, and, and I, when I say that word sane, S-A-N-E, um, this is in a different context from um, mental health. Because I, although it's the same in the way as well, obviously, um, but I don't, I, 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 I want to use this word very carefully because um, it could look to some people or people could, some people could hear this 
and view me as or hear me and hear me um, attacking or denigrating mental health or people who have mental health challenges, which I can say that I'm not doing, but that may not be how you hear it. But what I am saying is, is that you should be angry about the things that are going on in this world that are unjust, that are cruel, that are violent. You should be angry about George Floyd being cut down or Breonna Taylor sleeping in a bed being cut down. You should be angry that the police aren't going to prison for any of this. You should be angry that in many cases they're not even being indicted for this. You should be angry that there's all this violence going on against black people, against brown people, Asian people being targeted and attacked and killed. You should be angry about that. And then we've got to try to think about how we use our anger to fight for change. And it's been done over and over again. You just look at the history. If, you only, if people only decide to turn and crack open a book and actually study history, and you don't even have to do a book anymore. You go online, but I wouldn't, the way online is and the way, you know, Wikipedia is just, you know, really, it's a joke. Uh, and so many people rely on Wikipedia and it is not the thing to rely on. You really have to do some research online, but also look at books. You have to. And I like to think that one of the things I do on this podcast is suggest books for you to read, is suggest things for you to look at, is suggest particular things for you to analyze and also to talk about history because it's very important and very important. But you should be angry. You'd be, and, and to be angry about what you see going on in this world with COVID vaccinations that are only going to 10% of the world right now, with COVID vaccinations within a country where you've got governors like the Michigan governor, the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, basically begging President Biden, look, we need more vaccine here in Michigan. And there's a stockpile in this country. You should be angry about that, about Flint, Michigan, with drinking water that's still got lead in it, with Pittsburgh in, in Pennsylvania, same thing, Newark, New Jersey, with drinking water, the same thing, all three, and then other places all around the country, and it's affecting kids. Yeah, you should be angry about that. And it's also disproportionately affecting black and brown kids. So yeah, you should be angry about that. You should have your feelings around those things. And like I said on Twitter, at the popcorn R-E-E-L last night, yeah, I am an angry black man. Anger is not my totality. That doesn't, that is not all of who I am. You know, I do all kinds of things. I have all, you know, <laughs> other kinds of feelings. It's not only anger. And the society loves to try to pigeonhole you. So if they call you that, angry, that's a way for them to try to shut you down as a person and then get you to be all defensive about having feelings. <laughs> it's the truth. That is how it's done. And so there's all, oh, and then you've got a load of black folk going, well, oh, I'm not an angry black woman. Oh, I'm not an angry black. Yes, you're angry. So what? You should be. This world is, is evil <laughs> and it's beautiful as well. There's beautiful things in the world and there's evil in the world. So yeah, when there's evil things going on in the world, kids being molested, you know, priests and, and kids, and then everyday people doing the same kinds of things to kids, 
women being harassed on their jobs every day. And, and, we, and you know, those stories aren't the ones we get to hear. We always get to hear about the powerful. Well, there's more everyday people on earth than there are powerful people. And let's start to hear those stories. I mean, that should anger you that the everyday person's getting this. So, yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry about those things. And I want to, and of course I use the anger that I have in a way that's constructive and in a way that is designed to push things forward. And when you do work educating people, when you do work in your profession, or when you do work doing other things that um, try to spark people to do good things and advocate for their group, for their society, for a better place to live, for black people, a safer place to live, a more just place to live. Yeah, that's, that's how you use that anger. There's so many different ways to do that. So I, I just want to say, you know, if you weren't angry, there'd be something wrong with you, quite frankly. That's what I mean to say when I say to be angry about these kinds of evil things, these kinds of things in the world, is to be sane, is to be living in a rational manner. Because you'd be absolutely stark raving mad if you weren't angry about what's going on in the world, about vaccines um, being shut down, or, or excuse me, but vaccines not being allocated to the people who need them the most. And only in now when it's obvious that this has been going on forever, where there's always been inequities and always been discrimination against black people in terms of getting vaccines and treatments that would save their lives and help them. And, you know, again, in the medical profession where black people aren't being treated the way white people are. And there's been that for decades and centuries in the country. And, oh, now it occurs to you, oh, we need to rush vaccine to black people and brown people. Really? Because they need, and you didn't realize this 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago that you needed to do that. So again, you know, this is the thing, you know, it's all about the rich and the whitest populations getting this vaccine early, vaccinations early and getting the stockpile and and these countries getting it, these rich whiter countries getting this, this vaccine first. And then the African continent basically for the most part, isn't getting any. There's a few exceptions. South Africa, I think, is one of them. But basically, the African continent really may not, is not getting any vaccination at all right now. You know? And, 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 and those are the populations in all of those countries on the continent of Africa that need this vaccine the most. And black people in this country need it the most. Brown people in the United States Native Americans need this vaccine the most. So yeah, I'm angry about that. Yeah, I'm an angry black man. And I'm not going to run from that. But that is not all I am, you know? And that's what the society loves to do. It loves to pigeonhole you and get everyone to react to you in the way that they've defined you. So my answer to that and yours might be a different answer, but mine is to define yourself. And my answer is define yourself. Don't let these people define you. I mean, they're going to define you no matter what. But in your work, in your life, and what you do, define who you are. And do not let someone else's definition or perception of you 
be the thing that you internalize and then act upon and take on because that's just impossible. You've got to be you. You must be who you are. And that's the most important thing. Chicago with Hard to Say I'm Sorry. That was uh, one of the songs that uh, Chicago does some really good stuff over the many decades. And, and that's one of my favorites. Although I do love also the song If You Leave Me Now, which uh, was just terrific. 1976 or 77. Terrific song, which I will play a little bit of at some point, I guess, uh, not in today's episode. But thank you very much again for being part of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. And there is more merchandise coming, as there is every day. And uh, summertime is going to be here before we know it, but we're in the heart of spring right now, and the Spring Spectacular Collection is available now, right now, at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Please make a beeline to your online uh, portal, if you will, and type in that particular web address. You'll see a lot of great things. I know you'll like them all. So look, I designed I designed all of them. Everything you see is designed by yours truly. And there's so much more to come. Oh my goodness, just got a shipment in the other day. And oh, this destination series I absolutely am in love with. Um, destination series. You've really got to check that out. You can search that on the homepage of the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Thank you very much for your support. And by the way, also the newsletter every day, the Politocrat Daily Podcast newsletter is a newsletter you can subscribe to free of charge, F-R-E-E of charge, free of charge, right now at politocrat.substack.com. Really would appreciate that. People are subscribing and certainly would love to have your name on that list as well. You get the newsletter sent to you um, every evening um, for the most part, um, sometimes late in the evening and then into the night. But um, And there's things on that newsletter that um, I have discussed in the episode for the day. And there are things in the newsletter that sometimes I have not discussed and there will maybe links to those particular stories and there's links to all of the stories or, or a selection of them that I talk about and a selection that I do not talk about. And also there may be extra video, extra audio, um, video clips from particular things I've talked about and items I've talked about and discussed and also um, latest links to some of the new merchandise that's coming and a link to the online store. So you can just click on it and take a look and go there directly, and then and lots, lots more. And usually a compact, condensed newsletter that's not got a million things on it so your eyes are glazing over. Um, it's, it's a newsletter that's clear and clean in terms of the space and the content and being able to discern 
things. And I thought that it would be a really good idea to do a newsletter rather than put all these links into the liner notes of the episodes. And because I realized that, um, among other things, that only a few of the platforms that this podcast is on actually do have these clear formatting um, presentations so that all the things you put there look clean and clear. And then on a number of platforms, they're all jumbled. So you can't see what on earth is going on. And so I think a newsletter would definitely be an effective way to uh, deal with that problem and eliminate that problem. So anyway, there you go. That's Those are the two things um, about the podcast that I would like you to pay attention to. Please uh, patronize the store and also please subscribe for free right now at the uh, daily newsletter that you get. It's politocrat.substack.com. So I just wanted to just finish something up about the previous block um, that I did. And I just want to finish off with, again, from James Baldwin. And he seems to be the only person I quote these days. I mean, there's many other people. I did, by the way, I did quote Ella Wheeler Wilcox uh, at the end of yesterday's episode. So it's not quite true that James Arthur Baldwin is the only person. But he's someone that... I think is one of the great, I think he was one of the top five or ten greatest intellectuals of the 20th century. I really do. I think he's the top five. And you don't normally hear people talking about James Baldwin in that manner, but I do. And by the way, I need to, before I get into what I want to say briefly here, I need to get to tell you once again about his books. Uh, Many of you listening are familiar with some or all of James Baldwin's written works. And of course he wrote so excellently. And uh, roughly a year ago, or maybe a little less than that, I talked often about the books that he has written or talked from time to time about them and recommended them. I want to do that again since I've been quoting him a whole lot lately. Uh, Let me just, for those of you who may not be familiar with James Baldwin's written work, with his work, um, one of the works you really want to start with, with when you're talking about trying to explore James Baldwin and his view of the world and his experiences in the world and of the world and how he looks at the United States and uh, looks at the globe itself, is to start with The Fire Next Time. The Fire Next Time. And such an important springboard, really important work. And I'd start with that one first. There's also Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, And also Notes of a Native Son. Those are the three I would look at. But first I would begin with the really important book, The Fire Next Time. And I do think that's a good segue because... That's a book, I don't want to, I'm not going to give anything away, but it's a manual in a way about life. Not giving anything away. And I think that as I segue over to what's going on here right now with two of these cases, that these murder cases, in my view, I, I, I am of the belief, and I think people listening, many of you are, or some of you are, that there's no question that Dante Wright got murdered. He was murdered by those by that police officer, who, by the way, they've still not released as of this recording of this episode. They still haven't released 
that person's name. It's been 48 hours. But you could say that The Fire Next Time was a book written by James Baldwin for Dante Wright as a young lad. Dante Wright was a, was a lad. He was a young lad, a young lad. You know, he hadn't seen the world yet at 20. He hadn't. And, you know, the crux of this episode today is about a life, is about life, is about how do you mark a life, especially a life that's been cut short and cut short like this? How do you mark a life? You know, when you look back at someone and the life that they lived, how do you properly assess that? Or how do you encapsulate that life when that life is only 20 years old? Or that life is only five or six or eight or 12, Tamir Rice? Or, you know, how do you... How do you do that? Trayvon Martin, 16 or 17 years old. How do you encapsulate that life and say, oh, he had a really great life and he was only 16 or 17. Oh, she had a really great life and she was only 26, Breonna Taylor. So how do you do that? And the fire next time is kind of, I thought about this. Because I wanted to, to, to really drive home something that I know that, dear listener, you contemplate these things. Of course I know. I'm sure you do. I, I would be surprised if you didn't. That how life is so fleeting on this planet and that we have to do better as people, not only in the world, but in our own lives, our private lives, in our daily lives every day. We've got to do better. We've got to try to do the things that we're not happy about, about ourselves better. We've got to be better people. And as I've often said, we have to do that before we can start talking about, we can do both at the same time. We can try to change ourselves and try to change the world, brick by brick, bit by bit, right? Dante Wright was going about his business, going about his life. He had a wonderful little boy for a son, He had a girlfriend, he had a mother who loved him, he had family who loved him and, you know, and people who cared about him. You know, just driving and minding his business and the police get involved. And that's where, you know, we've got this kind of problem, the police. Because the police are not your friendly neighborhood person on the beat. They are this occupying force. And maybe for you, dear listener, you've never had a negative experience with a police officer. You can possibly say very clearly that you've never been stopped by a police officer. You've never been given a ticket if you've been stopped by a police officer. You've never had anyone detain you if you're a police officer. Excuse me, if you're by a police officer, if you're someone in this world. Maybe that's not applied to you. Maybe you've never had the, I tell you what, I have, as you know now, I've told you, 
I have been stopped by police. And I would say, I would say most every black person has. I would say 90% or 80% of black people out in this world, out in this country have been stopped. And if they haven't been stopped, well, because I don't think every single black person on the planet has been stopped by police or in this country has been stopped by police. But I will tell you, at least 85 to 90% have, in my view. I could be wrong. I could be correct. But I don't think if I was wrong, I'd be far off the exact percentage. And so when Dante Wright was driving on Sunday, I don't think he had any inkling that this would be the last day of his life, the last day of his 20-year-old life. I don't think so. Do you think he would have had any inkling that this particular Sunday would be the very last day of his life, of his 20-year-old life? Do you think he would even be singing Don McLean's American Pie? Who does that? Who would be singing that? Who would be thinking that they're going to go today? Even all of the people I talk about, or some of the people I talk about here, Dr. King, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, who knew that Death was around the corner for them. And they didn't even get to the age of 40. They never actually said anything about this is going to be the day. Don McLean's, I don't think Don McLean's American Pie was out just then anyway. It was a little bit after, a little bit after them, after all of the three of those brothers had been assassinated. Um, so that's really inapposite. But the point I'm trying to make here, however sloppily I'm trying to do it, is that Dante Wright had everything to live for. And even if some people say, well, he didn't, or if even if in the world one says reflexively, well, he didn't, or well, someone didn't, they did. They had everything to live for. They had a meaning. When I say they had everything to live for, when Dante Wright, let me start again. When Dante Wright, when I say that he had everything to live for, I mean that his whole life was ahead of him. What gives the police the right to take that life? Nothing. And certainly not with someone who is going back into his vehicle, or so the story is. And he's shot. Dead. That story does not add up, by the way. Right. Think about it now. The story from the uh, Brooklyn Center Police Department in Minnesota is that supposedly the person, the cop whose name, as I said, we still don't know. Hopefully we'll get that sometime before the end of this particular day. I won't be holding my breath and I hope you don't hold yours either. I don't buy the story about, oh, well, you know. The officer pulled out a taser, uh, was trying to go for a taser, but instead of the taser, they went for the gun and it was a mistake and it was an accident. And they meant to go for their taser, but they went for the gun and they shot. So wait a minute now. Did you look? See, here's here's where you poke holes in all this garbage. Did you look? 
at what you were doing? Or did you just kind of just grab for something and not look? And here's the thing that gets me. How on earth are you on the police to begin with if you don't know the difference between a taser and a gun? And why is it that you always seem to get confused between those two things when a black person is in front of you? Same thing with Oscar Grant in 2009, New Year's Day, Oscar Grant, here in California, here literally around 17 miles from here in San Francisco, 17 miles away at Fruitvale Station on the BART system, Bay Area Rapid Transit System, on the platform at Fruitvale Station on the, in the early hours of January 1, 2009. Johannes Meserly, white male police officer, did exactly the same thing. Oscar Grant on the ground. He pulls out a gun, bang, shoots him, dead, point blank range. Oscar Grant no longer here. You may remember the movie Fruit Vale Station, where Michael B. Jordan so unforgettably played Oscar Grant in the Ryan Coogler debut movie. Now, both of those gentlemen have really gone on to super planes. They've gone on to some really big success. But that was the film that I think really put both of them into the public conscience. And I remember having a conversation briefly um, during a reception um, around that time, 2000, whenever that movie came out, 2012, 2000. 13, whenever that movie came out, 14, 15, I don't remember when the movie came out, but but the point is, is that I, I had a conversation with the director, Ryan Coogler, and we talked about this, and he's from Oakland, Ryan Coogler. All that area is his backyard, basically, and, you know, it was a really good film and really powerful, the performances and the direction, and, and the, the movie itself was just outstanding. Um, the mother, and jeez, I can't believe I forget the actor's name. I forget her name. Um, I think it was Octavia Spencer. It was Octavia Spencer who played the mother of Oscar Grant. She was so memorable. It was such a good film. Painful. But you see what I mean? Is that how do police officers somehow differ? They can't figure out the difference between a gun and a taser. A taser and a gun. They have problems figuring out whether a black person's holding a wallet Amadou Diallo or a gun. How come they can't do that? They can't differentiate that. All the so-called training they have and they can't figure out the differences. But when a white person comes up to them with an axe, when a white person comes up to them brandishing a weapon, when a white person comes up to them with a car and tries to ram it into them, they pretty damn well know the difference. But not only do they know the difference, and not only are they very clear about what's happening, they don't seem to take out their guns or their tasers. In fact, not seem. They literally do not take out their guns. They do not unholster their weapon, and they do not take out their tasers. When a white woman is lunging at them with a knife. So how come, when it comes to Dante Wright, that somehow, oh, oh, I don't know where my taser and gun are. I don't know where. 
and I just grabbed a gun. Why is that always happening to us? How come you're not making these mistakes and you're maybe, is it that you're mistakenly doing this because you really aren't making mistakes? Like it's not, you're not mistakenly buying a white killer Burger King. You're not mistakenly allowing a white killer who admits to you that he just killed two people. You're not mistakenly allowing him to leave the state of Wisconsin. You're not mistakenly, mistakenly allowing a woman lunging at you, white woman with a knife lunging at you. You're not mistakenly allowing her to keep doing that while you do not subdue her with any kind of gun or stun gun or taser or anything. And you're not doing that mistakenly when you're not mistakenly confronting a white man who's swinging an axe hand, an axe at you. You're pretty damn clear on what you're doing and what they are doing. But somehow you're not with a 20-year-old black boy. Give me a break. It's just, it's just really ridiculous. And so you can poke the holes in this story. And then the question becomes, how close is this officer to Dante Wright? Was this officer to Dante Wright? How close? How many bullets were really fired? I know the police chief is saying, oh, one, oh, it was only one. It was only. See, when the police chief starts to come out with all this stuff, before we even know the person's name, the cop's name, you really should be thinking very, very closely about what is going on here. Because it is a cover-up. And even if you accept the bologna sandwiches explanation, because I don't, about, oh, it was a taser instead of a gun, and oh, no, it was a gun instead of a taser. Why were, why was the body of Dante Wright allowed to lie in the street for at least six hours? And when the mother is begging the police, when people who know Dante Wright are begging police, please remove his body from the street. It's broad daylight. We don't need to see everybody walking here and see his body here. We don't need to have his dead body lying out here in broad daylight on a Sunday or any day. Have the decency to respect his memory and either cover up the body or move the body from the scene. And cordon the place off. Again, that does not explain that either, right? That doesn't, right? So you've got that happen. You've got this happening. And the holes you can poke very easily in this flimsy story. And again, I think what happens there, even with all of that, and I've not even got to everything about this particular murder, in my view, and the inconsistency already in it is how are you using a taser for somebody who you supposedly stopped because of air freshener? If you stop them because they got air freshener dangling from their rear view mirror, why does that need a taser to begin with? Even if you claim that you use, oh, I'm, oh, I do. Oh, I pulled out a gun instead. Why is it that you're using a gun or a taser 
for stopping someone for air freshener. There are eyewitnesses to this. Dante Wright wasn't fighting them. Dante Wright wasn't posing a physical threat to them. So why are you using a taser? Even if he's driving off, what is a taser going to do? What you do is you call for backup. And this is happening in all of these cases. And whether it's the case with Rayshard Brooks, when I told you about that yesterday, you remember Rayshard Brooks from last summer in in Atlanta area outside the Wendy's in the parking lot of Wendy's and instead of those that cop calling for backup he decided to take matters in his own hands I don't want to let this one get away and so I'm going to just shoot him in the back three times and that's that's just that is Hollywood but that's also very much America when it comes to black people in all these cases the way that these cops resolve things and these cases are involving black people is to shoot them in the back which is obviously illegal, it's obviously murder, it's obviously against every Supreme Court precedent, Tennessee versus Garner. Please look that up. You can go back to Walter Scott in uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, or, you know, in whichever state that was, either North or South Carolina, it was in North Charleston, I think. But whichever state it was in, whether it was North Carolina or South Carolina or Charleston or North Charleston or whichever city, the point is, is that was caught on video as well. And the cop shot Walter Scott in the back as Walter Scott was running away, a black man, and then planted drugs and planted guns on him and all this stuff. And if it wasn't for a bystander with a cell phone video, we'd never know. And I think Schlager eventually, after two trials, was found guilty. A lot of people forget that Michael Schlager, the cop that killed Walter Scott by shooting him in the back at least twice, if not more times, had been in the first trial acquitted. It was a mistrial, rather. And I know I'm not going to say anything about George Floyd's trial of uh, um, Derek Chauvin in connection to killing George. I'm not going to say anything. But, um, yeah, Schlager had two trials. And on the second trial, they got him and convicted him of these charges, of some of these charges, around Walter Scott, murder of Walter Scott, the killing of Walter Scott. So my whole thing is life. How are you measuring it? And the police are measuring it one way. We've got to pull out a taser for this black kid. And you and I are perhaps measuring it another way. I certainly am. I don't want to ascribe what you're feeling and what, how you measure life and how you measure the life of a black person, how you evaluate it, how you see it. Because you know how I've, what my position on this is, is that I don't think this particular country, and I dare say the UK as well, views black people at all as human. They don't recognize our humanity. I mean, if you're calling a, a country... Uh, a country that doesn't have any institutionalized racism in it, the UK, that report they did a couple of weeks ago, that commission report, if you're saying, you do definitely don't recognize black people's humanity. And you've got some black fool over here in the United States named Leo Terrell, a so-called civil rights attorney, who's yelling and screaming on Fox 
news, in quotes, that, no, there's no racial discrimination in the United States. There's no institutionalized racism. Jim Crow was dead in 1964. I played the audio of much of that nonsense the other day on the Politocrat Daily Podcast. In fact, it was, it was Sunday's episode. But that kind of garbage that you hear from people like Leo Terrell, that you, you hear about that report from the UK, is the kind of garbage that, that loves to get clickbait because it's really, it's crap that sells itself. And it is the kind of thing that some people love. And when Leo Terrell shucks and jives for some money to say the garbage that he says, which is why any or most of these people even say this stuff, some of them actually do believe it and some of them, like Tucker Carlson, actually do believe it because they are racists. And then there are people who... So he is getting millions of dollars a year for for spreading racism and lies and racist dogma and garbage because he is a racist himself. So he slips right on in and he's not talented he's terrible and shouldn't be on the air spouting racist and misogynist things especially the racist things he says every day i don't watch him believe me i just see the clips that come across my timeline and i really should stop watching those but that's what the whole society does so it actually makes a cottage industry out of people like this to make money And it's all about making the money and also promoting the racism and the racists. How do you measure this life of Dante Wright, though? Really, that's the theme, because he really wasn't a life to live. He didn't have enough of a a life. And I'm not saying, and I don't mean that as in get a life or he he had no life. He was a low life. He had no life. No, I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying 20 years Some people's marriages are 20 years long. So how, what are you talking about? When you talk about a life, Dante Wright was just 20. Here's what his aunt had to say last night. Just a little of what she had to say last night on CNN Tonight with Don Lemon. You know, sorry for your loss, obviously. A horrible time for your family. Um, we're seeing more unrest on the ground tonight. Your family has been calling for calm. Do you have a message for the crowd out there tonight and people watching? I'm going to be honest with you right now. All I can think about is my family, what they're going through, what we're feeling. I haven't, I haven't thought more about what's going on out there on the street. What I thought about is getting off this road, getting to my brother, getting to my sister-in-law because my nephew was murdered. I can't think of nothing right now. That's all I could think of is being there, supporting them. And it's hard being that you're at the bottom of the map and you got to come all the way to the top for something like this. That was the aunt of... Dante Wright, Naisha Wright, and on Don Lemon last night. And quite frankly, again, one of the, another reason I don't watch the corporate news media is that there are people who ask some really silly questions and very insensitive ones. The onus should not be about the families calling for calm. 
That is really a thing that is really ascribed to black people all the time. We're the ones who lose a life. We're the ones who have the police go kill us, right? We don't have them do it. I'm saying, let me rephrase. We are the ones who are getting killed out here by the police. We are the ones who are not getting justice. We are the ones who see time after time after we are being killed and we're losing family members and other loved ones and other people who are close to us and people who aren't close to us. We're losing them in our neighborhoods. And time after time, when it's a police officer, they're not getting indicted. They're not getting indicted. They're not getting arrested. They're not getting named right now. And we're the ones that are asked to be calm and we're allowed, be calm, be cool, be calm. And this has been going on for 400 years. Be cool, be calm, be cool, be calm. And it's just madness. Don't get angry. Don't be the angry black woman. Don't be the angry black man. Like you're not supposed to have feelings. You're not supposed to have emotions. You're not supposed to experience anger. You're not supposed to experience joy. So you don't like it when I'm angry and you call me the angry black man. And then when we have black joy, you're upset about that too. Do you comprehend what we are talking about here? When we say that there is such oppression and anti-blackness in the United States of America. And we are being policed in every aspect. How we wear our hair. What kind of speech we use. What kind of clothes we wear. Whether we are selling water, like a six-year-old girl was selling water outside her own stoop in San Francisco. Whether a young brother in San Francisco opens up his lemonade stand, Victor Stevenson, who I got to meet a few years ago, and then have five police squad cars come up and five cops come out with guns drawn at him. Because some white neighbor who just moved in two minutes ago in the Mission District of San Francisco thought it was thought, just thought fit to call 911 because there's a guy opening up a store. He's opening his storefront with his own keys. So I'm going to call 911. We're being policed in so many ways. And if it's not by police officers, it's by other white people. It's a, by some white people. Amy Cooper in Central Park. The brother can't even bird watch. Really? So the guy can't go to Central Park and bird, bird watch because your white sensibility gets offended somehow or the, the racist tendency you've got spurs you to lie. And by the way, lynch your dog as a warning to this brother, basically. While you're calling 911 and lying your ass off about how this brother is threatening you. And he happens to have the same last name you do. You happen to have the same last name he does. It's like what James Baldwin said, you know, 
white, white women have black men killed knowing them to be their lovers. White men have white men, black men killed knowing them to be their brothers or their, their sons. And he says in that, that piece I've just said, you know, it's not about a race problem, he says. He says it's about taking responsibility for your own life. And I kind of agree with him. I mean, I think it's both. But I definitely do agree that, it, that it's about people wanting to take responsibility for their lives. And they just don't. Some people. Particularly the white people that do these kinds of things. I'm going to call the police and make up something and completely lie. And that led to so many black men being lynched in, in this country to begin with. So we're being policed every second of the day. We walk into a store. I walk into a grocery store. I got people following me. Oh, I've got the store clerk who pretends that they're looking for an item that they just forgot to mark off or something. And they're bending down. Look, where's that item? While I'm standing there in the store. We're being policed. Us, We are. Black folk are being policed every second, every day. You're not. If you are someone who's white, you're not being policed every second of every day. When you go to a job interview, you're not worrying about, did I get that? Did I succeed in that? Did I not get that job because I'm white? When you come away from your job interview, that is not what you're thinking. I wonder if they're going to not give it to me. Because the questioning was really hostile. And I wonder if it's because I was white. Is it because they looked at me as a white person and thought that maybe? That's not something you come away with if you're white listening to this. When I go to a job interview in the past, I've honestly had those thoughts about, hmm, the way I was being questioned there. And you think about things like this. Or was it because, is it just because they did this as an obligation or a favor to fulfill some requirement to interview a black person? That's not something that white people ever have to go through. So we are constantly being policed. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And my whole thing is, when Naisha Wright is being spoken to by Don Lemon, who just is a horrible interviewer, Horrible interviewer. Now, he has good people on that he talks to, but he just doesn't do a good job talking to them very well. He just doesn't know how to do it. And I know that Don Lemon's been around for 30 years and he does some, has done some good work. And he's some stuff that I don't really think he registers on the Richter scale for. But when you ask people like Naisha Wright, the aunt of... Dante Wright, 48 hours, not even 36 hours removed from losing her nephew because some cop doesn't know the difference between a taser and a gun, or so we are told. Right. Like that makes it any better. It doesn't. And it's still murder. It's not an accident. They're framing a case to protect this police officer over that 48 hour period that they have to do so. And you ask Naisha Wright something like what you heard, or maybe, oh, what do you think about, or maybe, I don't know if you heard it on that clip, but that the larger part of the clip 
in case you didn't hear that, in case that was not played, was, well, you know, there's been unrest, and I know that uh, Kate Wright, the mother of Dante Wright, has been calling for calm. And so what are your thoughts about that at this time as you see unrest? And I'm glad to her credit, she didn't take the bait. The aunt said, well, to be honest with you, I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm thinking about my family. We're hurting. And that's really what we're always asked. Oh, well, one of the first things we are asked by any of these media folk is when we've lost someone in our family to some murdering, you know what, kill, you know, kill a cop. The first thing that the black family is asked is, well, people are upset and angry and there's unrest. What is your response? Do you join your, <laughs> your relatives in calling for calm? Like we always have to be the model calmers of the nation. When we lose a son or a daughter, we have to be the ones to calm everybody down. What about these police calm down? What about these police out here calm down? And holster their guns. And stop the bullets. That they're firing away. And to those who might say. Well you know. What about the people in the neighborhoods. Who shoot up places. And gangs. Well wait let me tell you something. Those people do get punished. They go to prison. They get indicted. Yeah maybe they get out in a few years. But they do serve time for those crimes. And they are indicted for them. And in fact, in some cases, punished by, uh, well, most cases, obviously a jury of your peers, you're being punished very stiffly and appropriately, I should add, by members of your own community on these juries. So this notion among some people who are really just, just don't admit that they're racist, that somehow, oh, but you're talking about the police, but you're not talking about black people in your neighborhoods who are shooting. Well, by the way, we are concerned about those things. And that should not be an excuse for you to try to divert the issue. Because you've got the state killing you. That's a freaking problem, folks. Because every community has people who shoot people in their communities. How about all of the white people on, in this, on this planet or in this country who experience domestic violence and a partner kills that spouse? Where that or that that wife gets killed or that husband gets killed because the woman is defending herself and she pulls out a gun and kills him in self-defense or that husband who's killed his wife and murdered her, not anything to do with self-defense. It's his violence. So please don't bring that either here. It ain't going to be very welcome. And I tell you, in those domestic violence cases, those men, white men, who do this, and then black men that commit domestic violence, I'm just talking about this comparison that some of these yahoos try to do, as if to try to sidetrack you and get you off topic. I'll never be off topic, mate. I'll tell you that right now. But how many of those white men get prison time, get real jail time? What, what percentage of them get real hard time for this? How many times have I read stories in these newspapers where these folks are getting protection? The police basically serenade them in the friggin' police precinct. And 
in the intervening months up to the death of this particular white woman, say, I forget which state it was in, the police were awfully nice to her violent, abusive husband and gave him guns or said that he could carry a gun, Robert. And everybody wants to rush to generalize. Well, it's men in general. Yeah, it is. But I'm just talking about in this particular instance, we hate to get specific when it's about us. Some of us, some people hate to get specific. They always want to, well, it happens everywhere else. Well, I'm not talking about everywhere else. I'm talking about this situation. And how many of those white men get really punished for what they do? And it's usually, if they do, it's usually some high profile case, like a Scott Peterson, right? Who killed his white wife, right? White guy, white woman. He killed her, right? How about Oscar Pistorius? White guy, white woman, he kills his white girlfriend in their home. He's convicted, right? That's usually the where you hear these things where they actually get jail time or they get convicted. In these everyday cases, that could be that could be really specious. We don't you know, there ain't I would love to know because I read a lot of stories where those guys aren't going to jail for anything. And I can tell you that of the the small percentage, the two or one percent of black people who do this kind of violence to other black folk in their neighborhoods, they're going to prison, folks. They are, and they're doing time. They are getting punished. So I, I want to put that forth, but we are always told that, oh, we've got to be the calm ones. And we're constantly being policed. As I said earlier, we're constantly being policed. And all these decisions don't go our way. We don't get justice. You're supposed to be calm. Minnesota has a long history of this violence as Minnesota police. And I had been saying that police hadn't come around until really the 1870s or 1880s. Really the 1850s, principally. Because actually in Minnesota, particularly Minneapolis... Their police began roughly 1857 or so. So I misspoke in previous episodes saying 1870s and 80s. It's really 1850s. My point being is that to be asking the aunt of the young boy who was just killed less than 40 hours ago or whatever hours ago. It's just really, uh, you know, to ask her for calm, to be asking her, Naisha Wright about, well, what do you think? Why, why? Why, why is that the case? Why is it, why is the media always doing that? And then you turn around and praise them. Oh, they're a model of calm. I mean, what is that paradigm where that's happening? What's your point? And I just w- want these families to be who they are. And they are being who they are. And instead of these cameras telling them to be calm and all. You know? Why? What if they're not calm? Is it going to be that some white people are going to get upset and now not have sympathy? Why are you telling them to be calm? They just lost their son. You know, how are you talking? How are you, you know, to me, that cheapens Dante Wright's life. 
because we care about Dante Wright. We care about him. We care about Breonna Taylor. We care about her. We care about George Floyd. We care about him. We care about Tatiana Jefferson. We care about her. We care about Sandra Bland. We care about her. So we should be angry. We should be in the streets. And people are so upset about people who are looting. And like I say, I don't condone looting. But that's all system-based. It is all system-based. And what the media wants you to do is think that these are these black people, they're pathological. There is a peculiar pathology about them. And so, yeah, there's something wrong with them. They're looting. It's a systemic violence that's being visited on them. And, it's a, and that is their reaction to it. Oh, but you're looting in your own neighborhoods. Wait a minute. And where were those neighborhoods and who created those neighborhoods? Who, who had the, built the tracts for those neighborhoods? It wasn't us. It wasn't the people who lived there. And then who put environmental toxic waste dumps near those places in those neighborhoods? Who put baseball stadia and sports stadia in those neighborhoods? Who put all of these billboards with smoking and people smoking and people drinking in those neighborhoods? Wasn't us. Oh, but they're burning down their own neighborhoods. Is it our neighborhood? Did we construct it? Yeah, sure, we live there. Don't mean that we own the place. Don't mean that we, that we built. Oh, but there's black businesses there. And on what terms are they there? What kind of protections did those black businesses get in this pandemic? Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I didn't think about that. When I say everything's connected, dear listener, I say it with a reason. Because what I do here, and if I may be a bit self-indulgent for a few moments, is to make clear that all of these things are connected. That's one of the things I like to think I do here. But we care about Dante Wright. We should be angry about Dante Wright being murdered. And when there's no justice, we should be angry about that. We should take to the streets about that. You don't think Dr. King and Coretta Scott King and you don't think all of these people, Amelia Boynton and Diane Nash, and you don't think they took to the streets? Oh, but they didn't loot. It's not an issue of whether they looted or whether they didn't loot. That is all a reaction to systemic violence that has plagued the areas that they live in for generations. And, oh, are you justifying it then, Omar? I didn't justify a thing. 
I simply said that that is what they're responding to. You can take that or leave it. It doesn't mean that I'm saying, hey, go ahead. Take that television set. I'm not saying that. I am explaining what the reality is. And I am illustrating the history, which is really continuous, as I said yesterday. It's not a question of history repeating itself. I'll repeat that now again. It's not a history. People, I hear people, I see people on social media. Oh, well, it may not repeat itself, but it's, you know, I'm like, come on. This isn't about repeats or not repeats. It's about history being continuous. And there are patterns. And when you have continuous history, this is what you're seeing. It is ongoing. These murders of us are ongoing in this country. These murders of us as black people are ongoing. It's continuous. And yeah, I care about Dante, right? I suspect that you could, I believe that you care. I, dare I be so presumptuous. That you do care that a 20-year-old is gunned down by some cop. And we're told that that cop can't tell the difference between a taser and a gun. So yeah, people care. And their love for Deontay Wright and their outrage at a system that has completely told them and treated them as less than nothing and told them that through their systems. Yeah, the outrage at that, yeah, they should be in the street. Absolutely. I'm not supporting them burning things. I'm not supporting them looting things. But that is to be expected when you have your knee in the neck of black people for centuries. And you don't expect that they're going to respond. And then you're telling them to be calm. That's really sick. I think that telling people to be calm after 400 years of this, that's the sickness. You telling them to be calm. There's something wrong with you. Not with them, with you, for telling them to be calm. Why don't you tell those police to be calm? Why don't you tell those police to stand down? Why don't you get rid of their guns? Why don't you have a curfew on them? Curfew on the neighborhood. That's really, that's going to help something. You're only going to make the situations worse when you curfew a neighborhood, when you should be holstering them guns in those cops. Holster the cops. Curtail them. Curfew them. I don't want to hear about your curfew in a neighborhood. You didn't even name this cop yet. You don't think that contributes to people getting upset? And they should be upset. We all should be. And we should want to do something with our anger and make sure that these things don't happen anymore. But they're going to keep happening, whether we're angry about them or not, whether we do something about them or not. Because there's a system in place. And as long as you have a system in place, you're going to have this. How do you measure a life? The system measures it by the way it treats you. And if you're black in this country, you know how that goes. Trouble, Lindsay Buckingham. 
Uh, welcome back, and thank you for joining me on this edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. I am Omar Moore, and I do appreciate you. Thank you for listening, and uh, it is April 13th, 2021. I hope you're well. And I want to just say a couple of things before getting to um, day number 11 of the trial of Derek Chauvin. And previewing uh, today's day 12, as we are, you know, well, it's not really a preview because it's ongoing. So, but I want to say a couple of things really quickly here. Um, you know, um, and I want to do, I do want to revisit that question about measuring a life. Um, and I will shortly. So one thing I want to get to is the CDC. Um or I should say the FDA, which are the <laughs> acronym soup um, am I going to be talking about today? Well, it's going to be the FDA. The US FDA um, put out a statement, and there is, and I'll talk about this in the newsletter, I think, as well, um, a press conference that happened today as well. But the CDC, excuse me, the... <laughs> The US FDA and the CDC, actually, so I wasn't wrong. It was both of them. Um, they issued a statement today um, around the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which I've mentioned here uh, recently. And they are urging and recommending a suspension of this vaccine in the United States. They are recommending a pause. This is from a tweet in the use of this vaccine as an abundance or out of an abundance of caution. And those lovely words, abundance of caution, those are words you've heard many, many times. And that's the statement. I'll read it again properly <laughs> for, for those of you who didn't really understand what I just said, because I did kind of mangle that a bit. Maybe. I think I did. Today, FDA and CDC issued a statement regarding the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. We are recommending a pause in the use of this vaccine out of an abundance of caution. Now then, the reason why they are recommending this pause, both the FDA and CDC, is because of at least six cases, if not more, of women who got the vaccine and have reported getting blood clots and severe ones at that. And you've heard about this with the other vaccine that's being used in the UK and other parts of Europe, and they've now suspended it, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine where there have been some blood clots. And then there's been people trying to say, oh, no, it's not really that bad. It's just a few cases. Oh, try telling that to the people who have those just a few cases. That it is just a few cases. So this is a serious thing now. Then the larger conversation becomes, were these vaccines rushed? Some people, some of us were saying that they were. And isn't this not, isn't this about profit? Isn't it? I mean, the basic answer is yes. And you're risking people's lives for it. 
Yes, that's happened forever. It doesn't make it right, of course. Whether it's happened forever or for the last five seconds, it doesn't make it right. But that's the thing. Now it's two vaccines now that have been either paused or there have been worries or recommendations to be paused. And it should kind of set off some thinking for you. And some will say, well, it always happens. There's always going to be some people that get some kind of... But that's not the point. You spent all this time researching and doing this, supposedly trialing all of this. I don't know how carefully people have been trialing it, but obviously maybe not carefully enough because this is causing people severe reactions. I don't care if it's only six, only. I shouldn't even use that word. I don't care that it's six people. Again, it's not about numbers, as James Baldwin said. You don't need numbers. You need passion. It's not about the numbers of people. One is too many, as you all know. So that's a really, really significant bit of news. That the Johnson Johnson one-shot vaccine, everyone, oh, one-shot, ooh. You know, and now come to find out that both the two foremost agencies in the country, one for in terms of food and um, health, respectively, CDC, one of the world's most respected places. I mean, until the last four years, now we're trying to regain that respect among the world community um, with Dr. Rochelle Walensky at the helm. It is that you've got these two organizations, the FDA and the CDC, who've put out a joint statement saying we recommend that this pause you can't, we, we want this vaccine stopped. And Johnson Johnson, somewhere in the, in the US or wherever else they are around the world, are cringing and saying, oh, how dare you? There is always money to be made. I know that's crude, but it's the truth, and you know this too. So look, I, I, I'm going to do some more on this. I'm going to spend a bit more time in the next uh, day or two talking a bit more about What's going on with this? This is a real problem. And it's so important to get vaccinated. So important. Especially when you know that hardly anybody in the rest of the world, on the African continent in particular and other places, aren't getting it. I know Australia's getting it. I know New Zealand is. I know parts of India may or may not be. I know that there's parts of other countries and obviously parts of Europe who are getting it. And, and in the UK and here. And even in all those countries, we're not at 50% vaccination. You know, not even close. In the U.S., it's about, what, um, 24, 25, 26%. Please get vaccinated. But not with Johnson & Johnson. Because that vaccine, and I heard that Rachel Maddow got that. I was told. Um, as recently as yesterday, that the last night, that Rachel Maddow, um, and I, you know, again, I don't watch the, the, this this programming anymore. I know I love to say that, don't I? I don't watch the corporate news media anymore. Like that makes me some whatever. I it does, it doesn't make me anything, or it doesn't make me nothing. It just is that I don't watch that anymore, um, because I'm sure that there's good. I didn't know there's decent. I know there's good people who or, who work in those places. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm just, well, anyway, let me not go into that again. But Rachel Maddow, apparently, I was told, um, received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I wonder what she's thinking upon hearing this news. 
I wonder what, not just Rachel Maddow, of course, what anybody who has received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I wonder what they're thinking, hearing now that the CDC and FDA are recommending an immediate pause. Forthwith, an immediate pause to the use of this vaccine. If I, I mean, I would be terrified right now. Terrified. Literally, and I'm terrified hearing this. Although I'm not shocked. Because how many times have we seen this scenario of people um, profiteering in the whole, the politics behind it. And, you know, vaccinations and, you know, stockpiles. Because in this country, make no mistake, the United Kingdom and the United States are stockpiling vaccine. And they're doing it for political reasons and other reasons. And yes, I know the richer countries generally do this, but it doesn't make it right. And then supposedly, hopefully, they will give it to these other countries that they help to make poor. But I do want to just, you know, I do want to, uh, and I hope hope they don't hold a ransom, but you know they're going to hold a ransom over these countries to do it. You know that, right? That's the dirty stuff that doesn't get talked about. In any media or most media, in corporate media, definitely not. That they will hold these countries to ransom. Well, if you want this vaccine, you're going to have to do this, this, and that, that, and the other. I'm telling you, you don't think the game gets played that way? I know it sounds cynical, but hey, this stuff does happen, folks. And I think you know that. But I just want to mention that story. I want you to keep your eye on it. I'm going to keep my eye and ear on it. And keep your ear here because I'm going to be talking about that. And hopefully... um, getting some people on to talk about it too. Um, I really think that's important. And there will be some guests coming, so do not despair. (laughs) It's not just going to be me you're hearing. There are going to be others too. Um, The last guest I have had on the podcast was a couple of weeks ago now. The two great filmmakers who directed the HBO documentary that they did called Tina, uh, Tina Turner. So that was a lot of fun. And there'll be more of that to be had uh, with some other guests and talking about some fun things and some serious things as it should be um, because you, you can't ignore either. But um, I promise more guests are on the way. Uh, do not despair. For those of you who are wondering, God, why do I always hear this guy? <laughs> why do I always hear this guy all the time? I want to hear someone else. <laughs> well, that's why you can go to two other two billion other podcasts. That's my response to, to those in the world who may think that. Or may, maybe none of you think those kinds of things, but that's okay. Um, but I just wanted to introduce that. that. That's an issue to follow. Let's keep our eyes on this one. And I will certainly be doing that, Keep our, keeping an ear out for this. So finally, as I said, I want to turn my attention now to... Um, I want to turn my attention now to um, day 11. Yesterday was day 11 of the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin, the murder trial of Derek Chauvin and the defendant um, sitting there with his suit and tie on when he really should be sitting there with sunglasses on and a suit and excuse me, and a uniform on um, because that's how he was on May 25th, 2020. I understand it is a trial. I know, I know, I get it. And you don't want to prejudice the jury by putting him in 
I, I, I get it. You know I'm saying this for a fact, right? I'm saying this symbolically because I think he should be sitting there at, with a uniform on. And I talked about that last week. But day 11, yesterday, and again, the prosecution, um, I think, have been better. Much better than week number one. Week number two, which ended last week, I thought they finished with a flourish. I thought they were much stronger. Uh, as I've told you, I don't think that has changed at all, has not changed my view of what I think the verdict's going to be. Um, but I do think that the prosecution did much better last week, and they definitely did well yesterday. And I thought that it was very smart of them to put Felonius Floyd on the witness stand to testify about his brother. It was a very nice personal touch because we hadn't heard from a family member. And I, I think here on this podcast had openly wondered whether or not Felonius uh, Fel- uh, Floyd was going to, or Felonius Floyd, excuse me, was going to testify because I thought he would be a really good witness. And I was wondering if the family was. I was kind of back and forth. Should they? Will they? And thankfully, um, Felonius did. It really takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, because it's not even yet been a year since George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin. It's not even been a year yet. And for Felonius Floyd to get up on that witness stand yesterday as he did and testify about his brother, it takes a lot of courage. And you can tell, you know, talking about how you measure a life, you can really tell that that family is close-knit and that they really do love each other and care about each other. And there's a warmth to them. And it was really good to see the prosecution introduce that because I felt that that was missing. I certainly have felt that one of the problems with the prosecution's case is that they didn't really put Derek Chauvin on trial. I mean, they put the Minneapolis police procedures up there, not on trial, but they put that up there, but they didn't necessarily put Derek Chauvin on trial, his character, his predisposition to violence, his 19, 18 complaints in 19 years on the force or thereabouts. I'm sure that the prosecution tried to do that, but the judge, probably Judge Cahill, um, kept it out. I'm pretty confident that that's probably what happened because it was going to perhaps prejudice the jury. Um, We can't have these prior crimes evidence things happening. And so I think that's a standard. So that didn't get put in. So the prosecution then has to step up and and do more because, again, beyond a reasonable doubt standard is a very difficult one to do. It's not easy. Even in so-called slam dunk cases and even in and especially in slam dunk cases where police are involved, because, of course, the police in this country are sacrosanct. They are absolutely sacrosanct. You know, that's how this country views them, as I've talked about over and over. And so they are viewed as absolutely freaking the bee's knees. So the prosecution has to work its tail off, its ass off. The prosecution has to haul ass to push through to that jury that this is a human being. And I talked about this with how you measure a life and how do those white jurors measure the life of George Floyd as a black person? Do they see a black person's humanity? I said that this trial depends on whether or not, will come down to whether or not the white jurors view us as black people as human beings. 
And if they see our humanity, there is a good shot that this prosecution can come out with a victory and that George Floyd's family can get the justice that we around the world and they have been asking and demanding from day one. The jury is literally still out on all of that. I must say that Felonious Floyd was really good yesterday. And I'm going to just play you just a few, well, some just some portion of some audio from him. Because many of you may not have listened to it. I think some people now are probably drifting away a bit from this trial because I think, you know, a lot of the compelling things happened in week number one. Week number two was the police testifying from Minnesota, Minnesota Police Department, which I thought was quite good, but it was dry as well. And then you had the forensic pathologists come in and yeah, it was really painstaking. Martin Tobin was the one that really lit up last week, if you will, because he was so incisive and he absolutely reduced Eric Nelson to rubble. You know, metaphoric rubble and literal rubble. The guy couldn't even speak at one point. And, you know, oh, I have to drink water. And I mean, what witness does that to the defense? And the jury had to have noticed that. So, you know, we talked about, I talked about that last week here. And this week now, the prosecution ended their case essentially on Monday yesterday with the testimony of Thelonious Floyd. And there were others after him who came along. They were all medical people and which were, you know, talking about the injuries were created by asphyxiation and had um, the police not treated George Floyd the way they did, George Floyd would be still here. I mean, those kinds of things we all know, but it was still good to have that happen. But I want to, because the, because right now, day 12 is right now and the defense has begun its case. And the case, by the way, before I do play this felonious, uh, uh, felonious Floyd testimony that you may or may not have heard, the defense case is underway. And I can tell you that their case is going to be very short and they're going to put George Floyd on trial. And the prosecution knows this which is one big reason why they ended their case or ended their, you know, their uh, presentation of witnesses with Thelonious Floyd almost at the very end of that witness list. Because they know now that for the next one, two, three days, the defense is going to make out that Derek Chauvin was somehow an angel who presided over the death of George Floyd rather than the killer that he was. And the defense over these next days, one, two, or three, is going to put George Floyd on trial and make it out that George Floyd is the reason why George Floyd is dead, not Derek Chauvin. In fact, one of my criticisms is is that George Floyd has been put on trial in this particular case during the prosecution's case. Because when the prosecutor in the first week, which is one of the reasons I thought the prosecution did so terribly the first week, is that they're interviewing, I almost said Courtney Cox, the actor. (laughs) They, you know, um, Courtney, um, whatever her last name is now, escapes me. 
the girlfriend of George Floyd, put her on the stand asking her about drug use. I thought that that was really a, a problem. I get it. It was a preemptive strike as against the defense bringing it up so that the jury wouldn't be surprised by it. So we're going to minimize the damage on that and bring it up like there's some damage. I mean, I don't care if he had a million drugs in his system. It doesn't mean that you sit on his neck, sit on his neck with your knee for nine and a half minutes while he's handcuffed, while you've got two other officers holding them down. I don't care how many drugs he had in his system. But that's not exactly beside the point, but it's different from the point I'm really making, which is why is the prosecution bringing up his drug use? So what if the defense brings it up? The defense can bring it up. The defense will look mean, in my view. Maybe some jurors' view too. So the prosecution didn't have to bring that up. And I think that was a problem. But again, again, there's still room for more days of this trial. Of course, we have more of it. And the defense is going to go full bore. That it's going to hammer home to this jury that George Floyd somehow was the problem and George Floyd was the reason that George Floyd was killed by a man who sat on him with his knee for nine and a half minutes. And two other officers held him down and handcuffs held him down. But yeah, he was still the problem for his own death. That's what the defense is going to be telling you. That's what Eric Nelson is going to be telling you these next two or three days. And then we're going to have, according to Judge Cahill, Monday looks like the day, as I said yesterday, Monday looks like the day, next Monday, the 19th of April, looks like the day that the closing arguments are going to be made. And the judge yesterday said that he doesn't want uh, the jury to be hearing closing arguments on a, on a Friday because that means immediately the jury is going to be sequestered over the weekend. And that's not what the judge wants for them. He says that's not going to be a good look. And, you know, it might, it's not going to sit well with you. He even admitted that in court, basically. So what the judge said he was going to do was have the defense and the prosecution have more time to prepare their closing remarks over the weekend rather than just try to shoehorn them in on Friday and let that play out so that Monday is the day that you will likely hear closing arguments. And then after that is done, the charge to the jury, and then they will get sequestered the rest of the way for however long it takes to deliberate, deliberate. And I will ask you, and I'll ask you now, how long do you think it's going to, how long do you think the jury is going to deliberate for in this case? I'm going to put that up as a poll for this episode and tie it in. How long do you think the jury is going to deliberate in this case? Is it going to be hours? Is it going to be one day? Is it going to be two days? Is it going to be three days? Is it going to be a week? Is it going to be longer? Now, let me tell you something. If it gets to a point where it's more than four days of deliberation, he is walking. I don't think it looks good. And it might mean that there's some juror that they're trying to work over to get them to unanimously convict or, God forbid, unanimously acquit. But I want to ask you that. I ask you it now, but before it gets on Twitter. At the popcorn R E L. Do you, how long do you think the jury's going to deliberate? I get it. The case hasn't gone to the jury for deliberation yet, but it's going to. By the time we get to next Monday, so I want to preemptively. <laughs> I want to preemptively ask you that, right now before we get to next Monday. But anyway, that's something to think about. Here's something to listen to. I give you, Mister, Felonious Floyd. That's my mother, but uh, they called her Miss Sissy. 
Miss Sissy. Yes, Who called her Miss Sissy? Uh, everybody called her Miss Sissy. Uh, we just called her mom, uh, but everybody around the neighborhood called her Miss Sissy. Any, anybody that knew her called her that, and that was that. They had to be like 50 years of age, but everybody younger than that called her mom. That was Georgia's age. Everybody called her mom because she was a mom to so many people in the community. What community uh, was that? That was in Third Ward, and I grew up in the CUNY Home Housing Authority projects. Uh, it was low income, poverty. So uh, we stayed with each other all the time. Me and me and George, we grew up together playing video games a lot. Uh, his favorite game was on Nintendo. We played Double Dribble, and we played Tecmo Bowl. And I finally beat him in a game, and I was just so happy just thinking about about that. And he reset the game and would say, come on, let's play again. And I'd be like, no, nah, I gotta go do our chores now. Let me do my chores. But George also, he used to make the best banana mayonnaise sandwiches, and he used to make syrup sandwiches because George couldn't cook, he couldn't boil water. So, and also, if you, if you all were there in our house, you'll see George had lines on the wall because he will always measure with his height, trying to see how tall he is because he wanted to be taller all the time because he loved sports, so he always wanted to be the best. And he was talking to her over the phone, but she perished before he even came down here. So that right there, it, it hurt him a lot. And when we went to, he was, he had uh, received a scholarship to attend South Florida College. And from there, he played basketball there and he transferred to Texas A&M Kingsville where he played football. Right. Now, uh, I'd like to show the witness uh, exhibit 285 for identification. Sir, do you recognize what's shown in exhibit 285? Yes, sir. Is that a picture of your brother when he was at the Jack Yates High School in Houston? Yes, sir. Offer exhibit 285. Any objection? No, sir. 285 is received. And permission to publish. Approximately how old uh, would George Floyd have been when this picture was taken? It looked like, like 18 or 17 at that time. And you talked about um, uh, basketball and playing basketball. Uh, if I can show exhibit 287 to the witness. 87, 287. Thank you. All right, showing you what's been marked for identification is exhibit 287. Uh, do you recognize this photo? Yes, sir. Is there a picture of your brother in this photo? Yeah, uh, he's number five, uh, South Florida, all the way in the left-hand corner. All right, I'm gonna offer exhibit 287. Any objection? 287 is received. And permission to publish. All right, you indicated that your brother was number five, on the, is that on the far yes. left? Yes, sir. And uh, South Florida, uh, was that a community college? South Florida was a community college. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it, I noticed a whole bunch of the ball players because I met a lot of them coming up. Did, uh, did George Floyd uh, maintain you know, his uh, 
level of fitness and love of basketball throughout his life? Yes, sir. He, he loved the workout. He loved playing basketball. Um, people, he loved teaching people the game of basketball. Uh, that's to me where I really uh, learned how to play from him because he guided a lot of guys on the court and showed them what they need to do mm -hmm, to be better. And when he would talk about playing basketball, would he use any particular term or phrase? Oh, he um, said, hey, man, let's go hooping. And we will always say, come on, let's go. Um, we always went hooping. And um, you, have to, you have to hoop every day because if you don't go and shoot a whole bunch of shots, like 50 to 100 shots a day, and my brother will always say, you'll never be able to compete. Hooping was big. Because Magic, you had to watch the stars. We watched Michael. We watched Magic. We watched everybody who, every day. Oh, my goodness. Thelonious Floyd, remembering his brother and remembering the times they had and remembering George as a basketball player. And he loved to play athletics. He was an athlete. He was a father. He was, he was a human being. He lived. And it was so brief, his time on the planet, George Floyd. But my goodness me, there's a family there. There's love there. He had love. He was loved by his community. Loved. Loved. And it's not a question of humanizing him. He is human. It's, a, it's about a society that dehumanized him. And a society that was dehumanizing him. And all of us who are black in this country. And it's about the police, four of them, who didn't value or respect George Floyd's humanity, including the principal murderer, who is the defendant on trial here, Derek Chauvin. And that makes all four of those cops inhumane. If they and anyone else and a system do not and cannot and will not see or respect the humanity of black people, that makes all of them and the system itself, by definition, inhumane. Elton John with Song for Guy. And, you know, really, I, I want to say song, I want to say song for George because I don't think Elton John would mind that too much if I substituted. Although I, I should just add, by the way, for those of you who don't know, and I'm a huge Elton John fan, I got to meet Elton John roughly 40 years ago, if not a bit longer ago than that. Um, at Vicarage Road at Watford, of course, Watford, uh, the Watford Football Club in England um, that he used to be the chairman of, I might add, in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Um, but Song for Guy, by the way, uh, is a song that actually was dedicated to uh, a 17-year-old boy named Guy Burchett and, and um, how his life was so untimely ended 
ended in such a violent way. You know, he, um, I think he was involved in a, a car crash or a motorcycle crash or a bike bicycle crash or something. And it just so happened that Elton John happened to be writing a song. And I don't know what the song was going to be about, but I, from what I know, what I understand, and I think he's mentioned also in the, Elton John's written about this too in his autobiography entitled Me. Um, and uh, one of the things I think he points to, if I remember correctly, is that um, he was writing a song and literally um, this horrible accident happened. And um, apparently, um, I don't know if this 17-year-old named Guy Burchett was working in conjunction with Elton John or if he was working for a company that Elton John had connections to or if it was just that he was a messenger for the company he worked for independently of Elton John. But Elton John was inspired... um, to dedicate the song that you just heard, the instrumental, because it's an instrumental that you heard, to Guy, as in Guy Burchett. Not song for Guy as in a generic Guy, but a Guy, this person, a human being named Guy Burchett. And so I would like to, with, uh, I'm sure that Elton John won't mind, um, song for George. You know, maybe I should uh, put together something. Uh, I can't play the piano, Um, I could try, I could learn, I could take lessons in it. Um, Nina Simone is no longer here. Um, She was classically trained, by the way. She trained herself as well. I think she is self-taught, Nina Simone, on the piano. Played beautifully. My goodness me. I don't think that gets enough, I don't think she gets enough credit for her musicianship. She She was an excellent musician, too. And Elton John is as well. And the Song for Guy, I remember that song back in the mid mid to late 1970s. And it was in 1978 or thereabouts, or 77, when um, this horrible accident happened. Might have been a bit before 77. Um, but Song for Guy is one of my favorite Elton John tunes. And I really want to call it Song for George. Song for Dante, you know? Um, Dante was just three years older than Guy Bachet. You know? Um, Song for Tamir. Tamir Rice was five years younger. Than Guy Bachet, you know? Song for Brianna. I mean, you know, you get the idea. So... There we go, you know, that's um, Elton John um, with Songs for Guy there. And so, I look, it's, it's um, here we are on Tuesday, a lot going on. Um, the defense case is underway. We will see what uh, Eric Nelson comes up with here. Apart from what I said, I don't think too much, um, except for three days of bashing a dead man, which is really what, let's be honest, what, Let's be honest. Quite look, let's just have it right. Eric Nelson has spent three weeks doing that. And there was only one day where it seemed he came out a little bit ahead, but that was only because not by bashing George Floyd, I'm talking about where he 
poked in some reasonable doubt holes because the prosecution had been so bad on a couple of these days in that first week that because they were so bad, that actually elevated how Eric Nelson, as poor as he has been. But I think the thing to look out for is that, yeah, the reasonable doubt may not be there for this jury. And those are the only 12 people in the world whose opinion counts. Seriously. And once they give their verdict, it will be all of our opinions that will count even more than the jurors. But for these next few days, through the deliberation phase, through the verdict phase, that jury counts. They're the only 12 people on earth who have the power to either say guilty to Derek Chauvin or not guilty to Derek Chauvin. And I am praying and hoping that they say guilty to Derek Chauvin on everything. Or on as much as they can, everything really, everything. I get it. Sometimes perhaps where the way this gets charged and how the judge does this, maybe that you, because there's this charge and that charge, maybe there is a way that you can't necessarily find him guilty. But you should be able to find him guilty in all three of these. The world knows that. But the 12 jurors, you know, we are, the world is not in that courtroom, is that, to borrow a line and paraphrase it from Denzel Washington in the film Philadelphia, Jonathan Demme's film in 1993. But we are not all living in this courtroom, are we, Your Honor? You know, there's a moment in there where Tom Hanks is playing the, someone who has HIV and uh, Denzel plays the bigoted lawyer who finally comes around, takes his case and begins to understand and learn and about homophobia and to lessen his own homophobia. And he's gaining this kinship and this, you know, this uh, friendship in a way with Tom Hanks, a guy whose character he wouldn't go near at the beginning of the movie Philadelphia. It's worth watching that movie again. Um, it's a heartbreaking movie. I don't think it's the best movie in the world. And uh, I, I, I think that although Tom Hanks was good, I didn't think he should have won an Oscar for that performance. Although I know lots of people will vehemently disagree perhaps, but I think that he there's other work he's done that was even better than Philadelphia. Um, although I'm not begrudging his performance. I thought it was a really good performance. Don't get me wrong. Um, he well, he was very good. I should kind of dial that back a bit about him. Um, but the point is, is that we don't know. We don't know what this jury's going to do yet. We can predict, like myself, yours truly, all we want. I can see all I want about what I think they're going to do. But I do not know. And nor do you. Which what is what makes these next few days, well, gripping, in a word, suspenseful, in two words. That's the second word. We'll see what happens. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>